This episode of the Duke Basketball Report podcast is brought to you by Bird Campbell. If you need legal help in Texas or in Florida, call Bird Campbell. Bird Campbell means business. Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 99 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It's Tuesday, January 2nd, 2018. Happy New Year, guys. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. We're going to, uh, we have a lot to discuss today. Duke's had some, had some great, great wins recently. Duke's had a transfer out of the basketball program. So there's a lot to get to. We'll, we'll do it very quickly. I am your host this week, Sam Klein. I am uh, out in Denver as usual. It is 5 a.m. on Tuesday. So if I sound a little tired, well, this is when we chose to record. I am joined, as usual, by my two co-hosts, uh, one in Atlanta, Georgia, Jason Evans. Jason, Happy New Year. Uh, Happy New Year to you, sir. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry that we're recording this early. I know it's even earlier for you than was... it is on the East Coast, but we were watching college football last night. Yeah, and, and it was funny. We, we, were, we were going to record last night, and then I, I texted you guys and said I'd rather be focused on the football games because we were going to record during the second game and the first game the georgia oklahoma game was so good and then the alabama clemson game was still interesting i think at least for about two and a half quarters or three quarters but uh, didn't end up being quite the thriller that the georgia game was so um this is my punishment for thinking that alabama was going to let clemson hang around with them Donald uh, Wine is our other co-host. He's in Washington, D.C. Good morning, Mr. Wine. Happy New Year, fellas. And uh, I, I just want to send a special shout out to Jason uh, for the traffic that you're going to have next Monday when oh my Georgia God. takes on Alabama. Um, <laughs> I, I, I Honestly, if I were you, I would just ask for Monday and Tuesday off because I feel like the rest of the state's going to do that. Well, and the notion... The notion that Georgia, so after Georgia won the game, I was like, so Georgia is going to be playing for the football national championship in Atlanta against either Alabama or Clemson. The number of people that will, there, there will be zero people who will fly to that game. Well, maybe one or two. That, but for the most part, every single person going to that game will be driving either from Alabama or from someplace in the state of Georgia. And it's going to, yeah, our roads are just going to be a nightmare. Luckily, I don't live anywhere near the stadium. I plan to just bundle up and stay inside. And and watch what should be a pretty good game, right? Because those two teams haven't played this year, although they've played, obviously, a lot of common opponents. Uh, well, and, and uh, because of the way the SEC works, they don't get to play each other very often, but they're always aware of each other. Um, they do consider each other rivals. It's not quite like... If Duke and UNC didn't play for three or four years and then suddenly found each other facing facing each but other for the national title, but it's like not Duke far and North off. Carolina State. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a better comparison. Like Duke and UNC, uh, and, Duke and NC State teams that know each other really well, play occasionally, and don't like each other at all. And to add to that, Georgia's coach was an Alabama assistant up until a year ago. So. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Are, are we the college football podcast, though? Yes. Or we're the college football <laughs> the podcast. College sports podcast. Duke basketball report. So let's let's talk about. Um, it's a good point, Jason. Uh, so Duke had has had one basketball game since we last spoke. 
they uh, won their first ACC game. It was in Cameron. It was against Florida State. The final score on Saturday was 100 to 93. And um, there were a couple of interesting points about this game. I'm going to throw it to each of you for for kind of your focused reactions. But the kind of the, the, the big picture story here is that the Blue Devils battled foul trouble um, throughout the game. It started in the first half and then continued on into the second half where at, at the end of the game, all four of the starting freshmen were in the game playing with four fouls for many minutes at the end of the game. Um, but the uh, in particular, Trayvon Duvall, but a number of guys stepped up to uh, to close out the game and keep Florida State at bay. It was kind of a back and forth affair. So let's do this. I'll 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 ask Jason. Jason, which of the impact players in this game do you think sort of had the the had the most interesting day, and and who do you want to want to focus on? Because there were a couple different guys who played big roles for Duke in this game. I, I want to talk about Trevon Duvall. Um, I, I, I want to start by saying, uh, of course, naturally, no one would be crazy enough to say that Duke doesn't win this game without great contributions from a bunch of different guys. Grayson Allen kind of carried the team early. Um, Wendell Carter, I thought, had a, a, a phenomenal game. Marvin Bagley had a ridiculous, absurd game. Uh, we've we've kind of come to almost expect these kind of games from Marvin Bagley, which seems unfair. He's he's putting up stats unlike anything we've ever seen at Duke, let alone from a freshman. But all that said, I want to talk about Trevon Duvall. And the reason I want to talk about Trevon Duvall is that I think, uh, you know, he's a guy who's taken a fair bit of criticism from Duke fans. Um, he has not been the traditional uh, kind of Duke guard because he's a really bad outside shooter. And, and, uh, we're not used to that at Duke, not at all. I can think back there, there have been guards at Duke who weren't great shooters from day one. Bobby Hurley wasn't a great shooter from day one. Tommy Amaker was never a great shooter as I hearken way, way, way back. Um, uh, in, in, in more recent years, there, there are a number of guys who've, who've played point for Duke. Wojo was not a scorer, was not a great outside shooter. But it feels like Duval gets a, a lot of flack from fans for the fact that, uh, you know, they're guys who weren't good shooters. He, he's almost, you could make an argument, he's a bad shooter from outside, from the perimeter. But he went, what he, he went did, one for five. He went one for five from the perimeter and raised his, his three point shooting percentage. <laughs> yes, yes, he did. That's, which, that, you know, that's pretty bad. Seems kind of hard to believe almost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and, um, and that one and that one three was was very uncontested. Uh, it, as most of his threes are, teams are are daring him to shoot outside, and the reason they're daring him to shoot outside is because he is ridiculously good when he gets the ball in the lane and goes to the hoop. Um, so so let me start by talking about what uh, what a remarkable final five minutes, and really it was a, it was actually a span of about three minutes. Um, where Trevon Duval took over a game that looked like Duke was going to lose because he hits that big three pointer. We were down four points, um, and there was five minutes left. Um, down four, five minutes left. It's not a desperate situation, but you, you kind of really need a bucket. And Duval, who's not a good three point shooter, stepped up and hit a three that that was really big, and it it, it brought us back to only being down one. A, a, a short time later, he starts taking the ball in the lane. And this is where I think Duke fans were like, oh, my God. Um, because 
this guy's ability to get to the rim and finish at the rim is truly, truly impressive. And I, I've got some cool stats. Uh, there's a, a website called Hoop Math that that you know does a lot of stuff about um, you know where you take shots. It's it's all these higher advanced statistics that I think are really, really interesting. Trevon Duval, almost half of his shots, forty-seven point nine percent of his shots this year, have been taken at the rim. Now, I, I want to give you some comparison on that. So, like, Gary Trent has only taken 12% of his shots at the rim. Grayson Allen has only taken 19% of his shots at the rim. Trevon Duvall, half of his shots have come at the rim. And that's not because he's getting wide open layups, you know, steals where he's on a run out and he's getting a layup. That's because this is a guy who can weave his way into the defense and 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 get right there into the heart of the D and he's great at finishing at the rim. His field goal percentage at the rim is almost 63%. Um, it's it's really, really impressive. And the other kind of cool thing about it is, and I love advanced math. These things are so cool. Um, the, the, they have a assist percentage at the rim. Like, so, so for example, Wendell Carter Jr., um, who takes uh, almost 60% of his shots at the rim, Wendell Carter tends to shoot right around the basket, as he should. Um, 72% of his baskets have been assisted at the rim. And, and what that means is he's getting passes generally from Allen and Duvall and Bagley uh, that he finishes there. Uh, Duvall is only assisted at the rim about 34% of the time. And I've thrown out a lot of numbers, but l- just rest assured, that's way, way lower than the rest of the Duke team. So Trevon Duvall is getting to the rim at the kind of rate that Marvin Bagley, Wendell Carter do. And He's, but he's doing it on his own. He's not being assisted by other players. And it's an amazing ability. His aptitude, his long arms, his, uh, his ability to dribble in traffic is a weapon that we just haven't seen at Duke before. Um, Jason, just I, I, have a, I, yeah. I have a question about those, about those driving stats. Do, you, uh, are you, do, do they go back to when Kyrie Irving was at Duke? Um. I don't think so. They they go back to 2012, not not quite uh, Kyrie, Kyrie Irving's just close because time because at Duke. I, yeah, I think that I think that the as far as the the driving ability and the and the court vision, I think Duvall's the easily the best guy we've had in that in those departments since Kyrie Irving had his very brief stint as a as a Blue Devil. And I I, I would like to know kind of how they compare on their driving and finishing ability because it seems like 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 you said he he. He has such an ability to get in the lane, to finish, to see other guys, and uh, it, it is—it's—it's it's incredible, quite frankly. Sorry, you were—you had a thought though. Go ahead and finish it. No, I, I mean I was sort of off on a you know ranting, not ranting, but uh, praise of of Trevon Duvall, and it's just uh, it, it 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 is unusual for Duke to have a have a situation where we have a guy who can make these kind of offensive moves and and finish in this kind of way. Um, he's one of the few players in the country that can do it. it, it it's a skill that is clearly <clears throat> going to land him in the NBA at some point. Um, and uh, and it was on display in uh, for about three to five minutes. Unfortunately, he wasn't on display for more than that because he was in so much foul trouble. But but poor Florida State was like I, they couldn't do anything to stop him. And and the idea that there's a guy that you would go, oh yeah, that guy is going to get to the rim and shoot a layup, and we have nothing to do we can do to stop it. It's like how can that be? It's just so so surprising. Uh, and I want to I want to go over to Donald to talk about the bigs. But before I do, I just want to point out 
on a big macro level. We just won a game against a ranked team, a really good team, in which we shot 26% from three, 56% from the line. Uh, we took a ton of three-point shots. Uh, you know, and I think that part of the story of this was maybe our, our shot selection. I didn't love our shot selection, but I, I, we won this game against a team that had two key players post career highs. Two guys had career games for Florida State, and Duke still won this game. And Duke scored a hundred points against a really good defensive team. Um, it, it, it's it's impressive, and and I've said this before. It's a little bit scary, you know. What happens when this Duke team puts it all together? I guess we've seen a little bit of that. Um, you know, some of these games where Duke scores 110, 120 plus points and and beats teams by 30, 40, 50, 60 points even. Um, but for us to do what we did to Florida State in a game where we did not shoot well, not at all, we got 100 points in a game we didn't shoot well. That's like, that's like unfathomable. So Donald... The reason why is offensive rebounding, right? And you, you got something on this, yeah? Yeah, so the first thing you have to realize is that we took 83 shots. That is an incredible stat that you my take favorite, 83 my, shots. In game. My favorite stat, field goal attempts, right? Yeah. I talk about it all the time. We yeah. talk about it a lot, and, and we, we should talk about the fact that we took 83 shots, and you were saying that we didn't shoot well. Uh, 83 shots is incredible because we, we had some help. We had 23 offensive rebounds on the day. And when you look at two guys in the front court, Marvin Bagley and Wendell Carter, those two guys together out-rebounded Florida State. That's, that's, that's just absurd. Uh, Marvin Bagley finished with 32 points and 21 boards, the first guy ever to do that under Coach K. Wendell Carter, I thought, you know, we say every, we can say everything in the world about Marvin Bagley about what he did against Florida State, what he's done so far this year. But we can say the same things about Wendell Carter as well. He had 14 points, 16 boards, and his game was interesting in the fact that he also had to contend with four fouls, but he had to do it with a lot more time on the clock. And he still was able to come up with big defensive stops, uh, you know, big rebounds, you know, great, you know, easy points when we needed them the most. Four block think, shots. Four block shots. Four block shots. I mean, the guy was everywhere, and he had to do that with four fouls for what seemed to be like seven or eight minutes left in the game. That is great poise. That's great, you know, footwork. That's, you know, really hunkering down and, and, and getting to the details. That's what Wendell Carter is. He's a details kind of guy. And when you see Marvin Bagley get all the accolades and and and, and deservedly so, you we got to start sending him Carter's weight too, because he has earned every bit as much of the accolades as, as Marvin Bagley has. He has been incredible and in, in kind of the unsung hero of the game for me. Um, Marvin Bagley, what else can you say? Like, like you said earlier, you know, 32 and 21 doesn't even seem remarkable anymore when he does it because he does it. It seems so often. This is a man who, if he's not the number one pick in the NBA draft next year, like guys, I don't know. I don't know why we're watching basketball. Um, this is the best player, in my opinion, in college basketball, and he is proving it every single game out. And it's simply remark. It's, it's incredible to watch. It's remarkable to watch. You can put any you know description you want in there, and that's what it is about Marvin Bagley and Wendell Carter in the middle. 
it's incredible to see those kind of those guys and freshmen at that doing so many great things for a top level team. Uh, but we have both of them at Duke, and, and damn it, I'm so happy. Did you, also did you ever think? Did you ever think, Donald, that that second jump would be a thing that every single announcer and commentator was describing about a, a Duke player? No, in in just about anything. Like I think most people have learned what a second jump and third jump is this year, and it's because of guys like Marvin Bagley and Wendell Carter, and just the fact that you know there's probably high schools all around the country where college or high school coaches are coming in and saying, guys, this is what you need to do. And they're just watching Duke games because they're watching Marvin Bagley and they're watching Wendell Carter and they're just watching their footwork, how they position themselves for rebounds, how they explode to the ball. And if, if they have to do it again, the second jump, the third jump, the fourth jump are just as, as explosive as the first one. So this is something that you're going to, you're going to hear going forward. And it's almost like, they didn't necessarily coin the phrase, but they've popularized it for sure. And and I, I wanted to take your comment about Wendell Carter playing with foul trouble back to what I mentioned at the top, because I think that, that foul trouble was a big problem for Duke in this game. And well, not I think I know that foul trouble was a big problem for Duke. And I read a, an interesting article um, by C.L. Brown over at The Athletic that came out yesterday. He talked about Coach K's philosophy on leaving guys in the game when they have foul trouble and noting that it's a learning opportunity. He said, quote, uh, when th- those are the times when players need to learn the discipline of playing with foul trouble. So I, I've kind of always held the philosophy that co- for the most part, coaches are too rigid on le- taking guys out with foul trouble. You know, Roy Williams, I know, is, is notable for you get two fouls, you're going to sit the rest of the half in the first half and, and other things like that. I I don't I don't know how important it is to learn to play with foul trouble the way that Coach K does, but I want you guys to hear to sort of tell me what you think about <coughs> my philosophy on this. Otherwise, which is that I think that the guys should be left in with foul trouble because they are going to, you know, if if they're going to foul out in say thirty minutes, you don't want to limit them to twenty five minutes in the game and lose those last five minutes. So if those are if those are your best guys, not that you should, you know, leave everybody in with lots of fouls all the time and just waste your best players at the beginning of the game, but let them play and and if they foul out, at least you got as much as you could from them. And in particular, you know, when the game is down to like eight or ten minutes left, holding guys out for the last two, three, four minutes seems like a recipe for letting the game get away from you and not having enough time to come back. Jason, what do you how do you feel about Coach K's foul trouble philosophy or or kind of the way that I rephrased it relative to some of the more rigid coaches in college basketball? Well, I don't know if your philosophy is exactly the same as his, but I think that your philosophy it's, makes a ton of sense. It's not the same, but I think it results in in probably similar outcomes, right? Which is the best players need to be on the court. Um, yeah. And they're going to get, you know, if 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 on this team in particular, I think Wendell Carter we gets in foul trouble almost every game, and that that's one of the ways that teams are trying to beat Duke is getting him to foul out. But that you know, if he plays with four fouls for twenty three minutes, it's better than if he plays you know for only sixteen minutes and and doesn't really get to to affect the game the same way. Well, and and my comment about foul trouble would be this: I think that if t- if players know that the coach has a 
fairly rigid philosophy about foul trouble. And like you say, you know, Roy Williams, who, who, who pretty firmly believes you pick up two, you sit in the first half, at least if, if players know that, then the fouls can start to affect their game and affect their aggressiveness and affect their ability to be effective. That will like, I think that it affects all players. Like once you get to four, you know that you only have one left. There's only, right. you, you may hold back. Duvall did not in this game. There were, there were a couple plays at the end of the Florida state game where Trayvon Duvall went in for like pickpocket steals and, you know, at, at half court. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what is he doing? He's going to foul out with like three minutes left and we won't get to have him down the stretch. But, um, but if you, if you play that more rigid way, then not only are guys going to be worried with four fouls with five minutes left in the game, they're going to be worried when they have one foul two minutes into the game. Well, and Wendell Carter had four fouls. It was around the three-minute mark, I think, where he drew that charge. Um, you know, there was a guy coming toward the basket. He could have let the guy yeah. score the bucket. And that, was a, and that was one of his best plays of the game. Yeah, and, and a huge, huge important play that was, you know, instrumental in... Um, I, you know, Florida State didn't score in the final. I think it's the final three minutes or so. Um, you know, this was a this was a really really close game, uh, back and forth, uh, mostly with Florida State leading. Um, that that Duke took over in the final couple minutes because Florida State suddenly couldn't score anymore. Uh, you know, and part of that was we had guys who weren't afraid to play defense, like Wendell Carter drawing trying to draw a charge. That was a play where Wendell Carter knew someone was going to pick up a foul. And there's probably at least a 50-50 shot it was going to be him. Um, but he, he wasn't afraid to make the play, even though it could have resulted in him being out of the game. Um, and, and I applaud that kind of courage. And, and I, I, I agree with you. I think Coach K allows these guys to play hard and play the way they want to play, even when they have the fouls. Um, and, and I think it sort of speaks in, in, you know, to, the, to his greater philosophy about coaching, which is that, he wants the best players to get the experience and that you don't earn playing time by playing well in games. You play it in practice. We don't, we don't get to see the practices. We don't know, you know exactly who's playing the best. I think we're going to probably talk about or at least speculate about that a little bit here when we uh, talk about Jordan Tucker's transfer. But, but that you know, these are the guys that Coach K wants to play the big minutes, and he's going to do that, and, and they're, he's going to get the best out of them for as long as they can stay on the court. The other issue that I kind of wanted to bring up and I'll and I'll let Donald react to it is the three-point defense. So we've mentioned a couple times in previous games, whether it was the loss to Boston College or some of Duke's better wins, how opposing teams are getting to shoot a lot of three-pointers. In this game, Florida State shot 32 three-pointers. They made 15 of them. I think both Boston College and Florida State made about that many in in ACC games. Florida State, we did in the preview, is a really good three-point shooting team. They they rely on it a lot, but um, you know they they shot really well. And Jason mentioned at the end of the game that Florida State didn't make a, their last few buckets. It was I went and counted. They missed their last five three-pointers. So at a point, they were fifteen for twenty-seven. Donald, is there anything that you know? Now Duke has had their long layoff. They had time to make fixes. Is this just what we're going to see from every ACC po- opponent? Is everybody going to make 10 to 15 threes against us? And are we going to have to win every game 193? Well, I certainly hope not because uh, I hope we don't have shootouts for the sake of my, my heart rate, my blood pressure. But 
to start off, I'm glad you brought up the, the, the three point defense, because I think one thing that we have to consider for this game is that 11 of the 15 threes that Florida state made were made by two guys. Uh, and, and those two guys had ridiculous games. Phil Coffer had 22 points in the first half and Brian Angola went off in the second half and he finished with 23 points. Um, you know, so although, although Angola only went five for 12, it's not, you know, for a good shooter, that's not an unreasonable day. Right. It's not an unreasonable day. It, attempting 12, I think, is is the real issue, right? Because we talked about it a couple podcasts ago where if they attempt this many, then it, chances are with these some of these teams, they're going to make many. You know, you know, I, I think it's for this time, it's not like the Boston College feel where it just seemed like everybody was hitting threes. It was just two guys, and those two guys went off um, at, at certain stretches of the game. Hey, That's concerning. Donald, you know, really quick, let me ask you. It, I'll tell you one thing I noticed about that. Yeah, they went off. They, each one of them got hot in different stretches. And then one of the ways they cooled off was they took really bad shots, I thought. It was like they went, hey, wait, I'm hot. I'm going to do a little heat check here. And each one of them, especially Angola, I thought, it, it, you know, Kofor did it a little bit in the first half and early in the second. And then Angola did it a lot in the second half. They, he was like, I'm hot. I'm going to see if this one goes in. And and they started taking bad shots as a result. Did you notice that as well? I did, but the other issue is that in the first half, Coffer especially, he made a couple of them. Um, and that's kind of what fueled probably the heat checks that you were talking about. He did a couple of those. But I, I think for the most part, it just seemed like there was a stretch where they thought everything they were going to shoot was going in. And there was a stretch where that happened. Um, that only fuels confidence, and that's what kept – uh, Florida State in the game and had them up by seven, I think, early in the second half. Um, you know, that is those sort of things happen in basketball, but it seems like this year they're happening a lot more because of our perimeter defense. I, I wouldn't say I after Evansville, I thought our defense had improved, but it wasn't cured. This was just proof that our, our defense, defensive woes have not yet been cured. Uh, but at the end of the day, this all goes back to what you guys were just talking about with foul trouble. In the end, it, it boils down to trust. And I think Coach K trusts these guys to to figure it out and to get whatever if they're if this team is going off, that these guys have the poise and they have the, the capability to still get the job done. And I think that was the case here. When it came down to it, Phil Coffer had 22 points in the first half. He finished with 28. In the second half, he was kind of neutralized because they said, you know what, this guy's not going to get any more shots off of us. We're going to let someone else try to beat us. And that someone else was Angola, and he did try to beat Duke and it was it did very well in the second half. But again, these guys were able to adjust. And even though they, it seemed like they were making everything, down the stretch they were able to get the job done on defense. Like you said, they missed the last five three-pointers. Uh, and that was when they were trying to get back into the game and, and really, you know, stop the momentum that we were having that, you know, those misses fueled a lot of transition buckets, a lot of interior uh, buckets to Carter and to um, to Marvin Bagley. And I think in the end, that is the difference. You know, our guys were poised all the way through and we want to continue to limit the the perimeter shots that teams are taking. But it seems like we're going to have to do it slowly but surely. It's not going to go from 15 to zero. It's probably going to go from 15 to hopefully 10. 
then maybe five. And hopefully by the middle of the season of the ACC season, we'll have this thing nailed down. I've got a really fascinating stat that that uh, I, I've looked up and looked into regarding Duke's three-point defense. Um, and, and last podcast I talked about, remember, I, I went back and I had to go back to 1995 to find the last time Duke had given up 15 or more three-pointers in a game um, after Boston College hit that many, uh, you know, 20-plus years since we gave up 15 three-pointers in a game. And, and we promptly do it um, again <laughs> against Florida State. Um, and, and by the way, I think one of the reasons for this is that teams are a little bit afraid to take it inside against Duke. Usually, you know, you thought getting into the uh, the teeth of the Duke defense was was a really good thing. And I think we have such impressive big men and such size this year that teams aren't doing as much of that anymore. And so they are sort of feel like they're forced to shoot outside. And I've got a stat to back that up. I mean, the reason we're giving up a lot of three-pointers made is that we're giving up a lot of three-pointer shot. Teams are shooting a lot more threes. Wait until you guys hear these stats. So if you, I, I, I can only go back to 2012. You know, it's, it's only seven years worth of stats that I have. But from 2012 to last year, no team ever shot more than 29% of their shots from three. If you break down, you know, you, you could either shoot the ball sort of right close to the rim, or you could take a two-point jumper, or you can take a three-pointer. Um, uh, Duke pretty consistently... Duke's opponents between 24% and 29% of the time between 2012 and 2017 Duke's opponents would shoot three pointers a little you know right around a quarter of the time this year wait until you guys hear this number this year opponents 38% of their shots are three point attempts so i mean the the stark difference uh, when we when we post the thread on this on, on the board I, I'll I'll post these numbers, but when you look at these numbers, you will see there is a huge huge jump in the number of three pointers that Duke's opponents are attempting this year, um, it, and and part of that, like I said, is that I think teams are a little bit afraid to take it inside against Duke. We're we're probably a better interior defensive team than we've been in the past but part of it is that we're probably we're not as good a defensive team on the perimeter as we've been in the past and teams have identified this weakness and and you know we've already seen it against bc look to an extent we saw it against florida state uh, duke almost lost this game a home game against a team that we're better than um uh, even though Florida State is very, very good, uh, I, I think we're just going to see more and more and more of this. Teams are going to shoot a lot of three-pointers against Duke. And if you shoot a lot, you're going to make a lot. Um, and the question is, you know, are we are we going to be able to counteract that uh, either with our offensive rebounding or or by hopefully holding teams to not a great percentage? I mean, the big difference in the Florida State hitting 15 of them and uh, BC hitting 15 of them was that Florida State needed 32 attempts to get those 15 threes and BC I forget, BC 26 or something like that. I mean, BC had shot a ridiculously high percentage from three. Although, as I mentioned, Florida State had it with 27 shots and then proceeded to miss their last five, which was one of the keys to, to Duke winning the game down the stretch. I would wrap by just pointing out that that, that trend, I, Jason, I don't want to ask you to go look up lots of other notable college basketball programs and see how these how Duke's three-point defense numbers compare, particularly in that 
number of attempts uh, category, but I will finish by saying that it's Steph Curry's world and we're all just watching uh, children brick three-point shots as a result. I do want to move on and talk about the NC State game. So Duke is playing at NC State this Saturday at PNC Arena. It's a place that Duke has traditionally, I think, had some struggles, in particular um, relative to the fact that Duke often has more talent on the floor than NC State does. But I think that of all the of all the ACC road environments, this has been one of the toughest one for the Blue Devils, say, the last 10, 12 years. So... Jason, I know you've looked a little bit at this NC State team. What can we expect from Duke? First, I guess the first question is, is NC State going to make 15 three-pointers against the Blue Devils on Saturday? Well, if they do, it'll be because of only a couple guys. They're they're not, this is not a great three-point shooting team, this NC State team. Their their best player thus far this year has been a guy named Alaric Freeman. Al Freeman who's a, a senior transfer from Baylor. Um, so uh, thus far at NC State, he's hitting less than 30% from three. Um, and he shoots a pretty fair number of outside shots, a pretty fair number of, of three-pointers. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm a little worried. This is a guy who, who's probably going to go off at some point um, on, as a three-point shooter, because like I said, he's hitting less than 30% so far this year, which seems really bad. That's not good. But in his career, if you look back at Baylor, he was pretty consistently 38, 39, 40% throughout his Baylor career. So this is a guy who's sort of do, uh, he's a better three-point shooter than he's been thus far. And he's probably due to have a game where he's, you know, five of seven or a six of nine kind of game. Um, and I won't be entirely shocked if he does it uh, against Duke, um, uh, state, state is a team that at one point looked like they were, they'd really, you know, pulled off a miracle and, and were really going to be a, a great club. Um, they were five and O we talked about it. They were five and O and they had beaten Arizona, um, on a neutral floor, which was really impressive since that time. And that was back in, you know, early, that's pre Thanksgiving. Um, since that time, they they've just gone five and four over their past nine games, and and, and look, I mean, they 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 lost a game to Clemson. They got they got beaten pretty badly by Clemson. Um, they lost a game to Northern Iowa, and they lost a game to Tennessee. And th- those are forgivable losses. Those aren't bad losses by any stretch of the imagination. Those are all three of those are good teams. But I mean, they also have a loss to UNC Greensboro, and and they've had a number of games where they just haven't looked very good. The, the, the team that beat Arizona to get to 5-0 and doesn't look like the current NC State team um, that's out there. And, and, and I think part of what's going on with them is they're trying, they're trying to figure out who they are. As I said, they've got Al Freeman, who's a senior transfer, who's a really good outside shooter. Um, uh, they've got uh, Omer Yurtseven, um, who's a seven-footer on the inside. Uh, I believe he's from Turkey. Um, he's from Europe. Uh, he was he, he was really highly touted when he came to NC State. There were some folks who thought he'd be one and done last year. Um, uh, he's been a lot better as a as a sophomore than he was as a freshman. Um, uh, he's done, had some good rim protection. He get blocks almost two shots per game. But I don't know if he's going to be able to contain Wendell Carter. He's just not he's just not really strong. 
Um, and that's going to be a problem for them trying to contain Carter on the inside. I, I, I think this NC State team, they, they, they just don't know what they're going to be yet. And, and, and part of it is the guy that really should have been their best player this year, uh, Abdul Malik Abu. And, and guys, you should remember Abu because um, he has really, he's killed Duke in the past. Um, last year he had a game where he went for 19 and nine against us the year before he had a game where he went for 19 and nine against us. And he had a game where he had 16 points and 17 rebounds against Duke. Um, and, uh, you know, Abu was a, a really athletic, you know, bouncy big man for NC state. Uh, but he strained a, a ligament in his knee and, and he's not been the same player, uh, since, since that happened. Um, and, and it's fortunate for Duke because I, I really think we're gonna be able to take advantage of NC state on the inside. Um, I, I mentioned your seven, um, uh, he and Abu are going to, and, and Leonard Freeman, I guess, Leonard Freeman is their other sort of big man who, who will, uh, Freeman's probably the guy who's going to have to try to, to cover Wendell Carter. Um, he's strong and physical, but I mean, it, there's no way he's not even close to quick enough to stay with, uh, with Marvin Bagley. Um, I, I, I think NC state is going to, really struggle with Duke on the inside. Uh, you know, most teams do. So the question for State is going to be, can they? Can Al Freeman have a really big game from the perimeter? Because they don't have a lot of other guys who shoot three-pointers. About the, the only other guy who, other than Al Freeman, who, who shoots number three-pointers and makes them at a decent percentage is Braxton Beverly. Um, and, and folks will recall, we've talked about Braxton Beverly on this podcast before. I've talked about him because this is the kid who was going to go to Ohio State and then Thad Mata quit, and Braxton Beverly um, tried to transfer to, to NC State. And at first, the NCAA told him he could not transfer because he'd enrolled and taken one summer school class at Ohio State. And that, so they said he was a full Ohio State student, and people were just like, this is just wrong. They, they, they penalized him for going to class, and it was the same time that UNC was being penalized for players not going to class. Uh, sorry, not being penalized for players not going to class, and it was it was this absurd situation that the NCAA found themselves in. Well, they they came to their senses, which is not something I say about the NCAA very often, and they they've allowed Braxton Beverly to be eligible to play right away at NC State, and it's good for State because he's probably their best three point shooter. Um, but uh, un unless we hear that Al Freeman and Braxton Beverly are burying a lot of three pointers, I, I don't see NC State staying in this game with Duke. They're they're they don't have the inside strength to stop Duke, and they're they're not a good enough outside shooting team, I don't think, to make up for that on the perimeter. Donald, did you have anything to add about about NC State? I, I, Jason, I, that was a really it was a really thorough review of them, and and yeah, I think that they're. I'm I'm a little surprised that that things have gone a bit south for them since that that big win against Arizona, although Arizona's fortunes have not been perfect as well. Yeah. I think the, the one thing that I was focusing in on, you, he talked a lot about the NC state offense. Uh, and I think that's really good. You know, I think the one thing that we have to worry about is the intensity level. Um, you know, we, we haven't shown that at times uh, over the last month or so, obviously we haven't played that many games, but this is going to be a big test for us. It's a road game. It's, you know, they just announced the game for Saturday night. Um, so it's going to be one of those games where it's going to be prime time on ESPN. It's going to be where the team needs to really come with a lot of intensity 
from the get-go because every time we play NC State, it seems like they level their level of intensity goes up like 10 notches. So if we can do that, if we can, you know, zero in on our game and, and play our game and stay focused uh, and, and do that in front of a hostile crowd, I think we're going to be okay. Uh, but it's going to be a tough game. I, I don't expect it to be an easy game by any stretch. I think NC State's going to come ready to play. And because of that, it's going to be a game that might t- tug at our heartstrings and, and raise our blood pressure a little bit. But uh, I think we have the tools and we have the players to beat them on uh, on their home floor. Uh, but we have to do that with a lot of intensity. You, you know, it, it's worth noting um, Duke has this has the middle of the week off. NC State plays tomorrow, Wednesday, at Notre Dame. Um, so this Duke team will be a little more rested, perhaps, than than the Wolfpack will. Although coming off a, the the winter, the Christmas time break, I think everyone's a little bit rested. But um, uh, Donald's right. I mean, the 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 big unknown here is how Duke plays on the road. Um, we, you know, we certainly didn't play very well at Boston College. Um, NC State is another team that isn't expected to be in the top half of the ACC. Um, where 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 there will be a lot of energy in the building, probably much more than there was even at Boston College, um, and and our kids uh, will have to adjust to that. That's um, that's going to be a, a a big a big part of whether or not we can whether this is a relatively easy game or or a or a really really tough one. It could be a really tough one. I wanted to move away from NC State and wrap up our basketball discussion this week by quickly talking about Jordan Tucker, the Duke freshman, has decided to transfer at the end of the first semester. So he's going to be gone now. I don't think we've heard yet about which school he's transferring to, but it continues a bit of a trend for Duke on in losing freshmen in particular to, to the transfer market. Tucker was a four-star recruit. He came in kind of late as a recruit. He he wasn't considering Duke for a long time, and Duke wasn't really on his radar. A lot of the chatter was that he was going to commit to Syracuse, and then Duke kind of came in, in in the spring after they missed on Kevin Knox, who ended up in Kentucky. They got Jordan Tucker, and uh, this season he he almost hasn't played at all. Only 14 minutes in 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 this first half of Duke's season hasn't made an impact in any in any game in any meaningful minutes. So. Donald, is there anything that we can take away from from Jordan Tucker's transfer? Any, you know, any sort of take it in any direction that that you think is necessary. I'm not sure that there's a huge lesson learned here, other than that you know players need to be perhaps more realistic about what their roles are going to be. If you know by by looking at the rest of the roster and seeing who else is there. Yeah, I, I think the one thing that I take away from it, and, and it's not a, necessarily a slight on Jordan Tucker at all. It's that I feel like this decision is one that's taken and it seems like it's one where he feels like he regrets coming here because in my opinion, he didn't give himself enough time to really feel out what his role was. I mean, he was only here a semester and I think that is not enough time to say, hey, you're never going to play here or you're not your trajectory is is going to be lower than if you went to another school. Um, I, I like guys going in there and kind of facing this kind of an, uh, adversity and, and not playing and learning and growing from that. Because honestly, as a basketball player, that's what I did in, in high school. I didn't play that much. Um, 
but and I know it's a little bit different for a guy who's going to a place like Duke. They they want to play, they want to star, they want to shine. And I think a lot of these guys believe when they come out of high school that they are the man and that they should be the man wherever they go. I don't know if that's Jordan Tucker's belief. I don't know what the instinct is for him to transfer at this point, um, you know, a semester into his freshman year. But uh, I, I just kind of wish I he would had stayed and, and stuck it out, at least for the year, and see to kind of really see what his role is going to be. Because, honestly, the rest of the season could go in a path where we may need him, um, and now we won't have him. So uh, it, it, it sucks for, for us, but, you know, best of luck to him wherever he ends up. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. wait. Donald, you, you think there's a scenario where this guy – uh, what's your scenario where we would need him? You this never guy, know. You never know. Honestly, let, let's let's be honest. He was the thirteenth man on the roster. Uh, he was. He was behind Jack White and Justin Robinson in the rotation. Right, but you know what? We Which didn't think, think Grace Allen. Right? We didn't think Grace Allen was going to lead us in the 2015 Final Four. He was one of those guys that early in the year got very little playing time. It was well, towards got, the beginning. It was towards the back end of the year. We lost Rashid Suleiman. That he did get a little bit more playing time and found the found the trust that Coach K needed to put him in at key important stretches. I'm not saying well, that was Jordan Tucker's trajectory this year. I'm saying we don't know that. So he wasn't necessarily going to play this year, but there's no reason why he couldn't have had a you know some kind of contributor role starting next season and been a starter, perhaps in his junior or senior season. You know, we we we've seen guys at Duke be buried on the bench early in their careers and then and then grow up kind of to become key players. Uh, look, I, I'm I'm not going to contest that it was possible. I mean, Jordan Tucker, like you said, was a top 40 recruit. So this this is a kid who's clearly very talented. Um in high school he had a reputation as one of the one of the better outside shooters um in the class. So th- this is someone and he'll be a high demand um transfer uh just because he struggled unbelievably at Duke doesn't mean that teams aren't going to want him. He's going to probably go to a prominent program, although if playing time is really important to him, you know, he may sort of pick and choose his location a little bit more, but um yeah, like a low end low end high major. Yeah, perhaps I mean a lot of people have mentioned Syracuse. He he could go Syracuse doesn't have a deep bench. They don't have a big roster right now, so he could really think that he can find a role for himself there, and that would that would be a high major. But uh, but yeah, it, it, I, I'm not going to speculate about where he's going to go. Who knows what what his inclination is? But uh, and I'm not going to say that he was not going to develop. I mean, that's silly of me. There are certainly guys who put in tremendous work. I mean, I, you know, you've met, on this team alone, we saw Grayson Allen um, uh, develop tremendously during his freshman season. Uh, Javin Delorier was a guy who barely looked like he knew what he was doing on the floor last year and has turned into a a huge key sub for Duke. But that said, the sort of natural progression of Jordan Tucker's career, uh, unless something really, really unexpected happened, I don't think you can make an argument he was ever going to be an impact player for for Duke. If you look at I'm not talking about this year. This year, it's clear. Like I said, he was the 13th man on this roster. Um, uh, you know, it, barely ahead of Mike Buckmeyer, a walk-on, because Jack White was ahead of him in the rotation. But uh, even if you look ahead to next year, 
I mean, Alex O'Connell, there was a lot of speculation in the preseason, you know, will Alex O'Connell or Jordan Tucker be sort of the guy, the freshman who comes in and and finds a role for himself as a backup wing? And it's clear it's been Alex O'Connell. And by the way, I, I regret that we didn't talk. I thought Alex O'Connell had some fabulous minutes against Florida State, really important minutes, as he does every game. Alex O'Connell, you know, his plus minus, when he comes in the game, good things happen for Duke, which is why he's getting more and more and more playing time. Uh, so next year, it's hard to imagine that Jordan Tucker was going to be ahead of Alex O'Connell in rotation. Duke is, Duke is bringing in the number one and number two players in the class next year, or number one and number three, whatever you want to call them, in Cam Reddish and R.J. Barrett, both of whom are wing players. So at, at best, Jordan Tucker was going to be the fourth wing player for Duke next year. Um, and, and even, even that I think might've been a stretch for him because there'll still be some guys on the roster and, and Duke may not be done recruiting yet. Um, so I think Jordan Tucker looked at where he is right now. He looked at who's going to be on the, in the program next year. And, and I think the notion that you would say, Hey, that's okay. Wait this year, wait next year. And maybe depending on who we recruit and who sticks around, maybe you'll find a role when you're a junior. I think Jordan Tucker, top 40 recruit who had NBA aspirations said, nah, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go someplace else. And I don't blame him. He's a kid who, who, who tried to make it work at the number one top, most difficult program in the country. It didn't work out. I think moving on quickly and finding someplace else where hopefully it will work out for you is not a, it's not a bad idea. We, we've certainly seen a number of players come to Duke, um, not be able to craft a role for themselves, transfer, and then turn into really, really good players. There's uh, Shemi Ojale is uh, is on the Boston Celtics right now, and he followed that exact path from Duke to SMU to the NBA. Um, and and uh, you know we've Michael Binajay followed that exact path from Duke to Syracuse and and, and became a star at Syracuse and and you know one of their uh, their probably their best player as a senior. Um, so, so there's nothing wrong with following that path. And, and I just don't think this is going to impact the Duke team this year or, or in the future very much at all. I, I mean, again, I think Jordan Tucker was so far down the rotation, he wasn't even getting much time in practice. Like when they, when they go blue-white to scrimmage in practice, they're not going to miss Jordan Tucker. And, and that says something. This episode of the Duke Basketball Report podcast is brought to you by Bird Campbell, PA, handling complex litigation, real estate, and general business matters with offices in Orlando, Dallas, Boca Raton, and the Gulf Coast. For all of your legal needs, call Bird Campbell, PA. Bird Campbell means business, and we should add, uh, as we do each week, that Bird Campbell sponsors the show because it is run by by two enthusiastic Duke alumni who are happy to help uh, Duke fans in those markets with with their legal needs. So we do want to get to parting shots and player of the week, but before we do, we're going to quickly throw it to Donald. Donald, tell us about your experience at the Quick Lane Bowl, which Duke won over Northern Illinois a few days ago. The final score was 36 to 14. Daniel Jones looked really good. The running backs looked really good. Donald, what was your impression back in your hometown of the Duke football team's final game 
to secure a winning season in 2017. Well, it seemed like they put it all together finally. Uh, not all the way, but I, I think they had one of their more complete games of the season, and it's great that they did it in the last game of the season to to do all you said to win the quick lane bowl against uh, what is normally a pretty competitive Northern Illinois team and to you know have a winning record uh, to close out the year. Uh, let me start out first by saying that for a bowl game being uh, the day after Christmas in the afternoon uh, in a place that uh, admittedly I'm biased about, but a lot of people aren't too enthusiastic about going to, uh, there was a great Duke crowd there. Um, there was about seven sections completely filled with Duke blue. Uh, and I was impressed by the showing of the fans uh, in a bowl game that's not, you know, a bowl game that probably people had to look up on Wikipedia uh, when we were selected to attend it. Um, now, a lot of tickets were purchased by alums to donate to military veterans and first responders. But uh, I think one that's awesome to do as well. And the Duke fan base really showed up in Detroit. They were all over the place. They were walking around. Uh, and I'm hoping that everyone that was up there enjoyed my hometown because uh, I, I had a great time there. It was a blast. Uh, the defense had what I thought was a dominant performance. They only gave up 14 points. They were both in the second quarter. Uh, and they're you know, both times are in the second quarter and are off of two big plays. But other than that, they really stopped them on uh, all. They're all over the football, two tackle or two sacks, eight tackles for loss, uh, three passes defensed. Uh, but it seemed like there was a lot of times where they pressured the quarterback into making bad decisions with the football uh, or hasty decisions on third down that got the defense off the field and got the Blue Devils the ball back. Uh, also, special teams defense, you know, our special teams offense, we missed a couple extra points, uh, but we were great in stopping. You know, Northern Illinois had a couple of ill-timed fake, uh, a fake punt and a fake field goal attempt, and our defense snuffed it out very quickly, which uh, you have to do. I think they were on their toes, and they were really, really good there. On offense, you mentioned uh, a lot of the guys. Daniel Jones, I thought, had a solid game. He looked really sharp throwing the ball. He found his guys for the most part, 252 yards passing, two touchdowns. He also added a rushing touchdown, had 86 yards rushing. Uh, he spread out the attack. He wasn't zeroing in on uh, one or two guys. You know, five guys caught four balls or more. Uh, that is something that you want to see with the offense being very efficient. Our running attack, you know, Jones, Sean Wilson, and Britton Brown all had rushing touchdowns, and together they had 200 yards rushing. The best thing about our offense, what we did is we kept possession. Uh, we moved the chains. We had 27 first downs, 38 minutes of possession. And that's what kept our defense rested. And really, it just we were marching down the field for most of the game at will and, and getting points out of most of our trips. You know, that is what you want to see. Overall, I thought it was a great night for, for Duke, uh, a well-deserved victory in the Quick Lane Bowl. And... I'm thankful that I was able to get up there and see it. It was kind of a a hasty trip through Chicago, um, but and it was cold. It was like zero degrees. Thankfully, the game was indoors, and I, I'm just glad that Duke got to not only uh, travel to Detroit and 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 play in the Quick Lane Bowl, but to play well. Um, that's what you want to see, and those guys go out on a good note. And for that, uh, it was a great evening. Yeah, I was glad to see that. We saw the September and November versions of Duke and not the October version. And hopefully that means that going forward, the uh, particularly the offensive issues are going to be solved for this team. Obviously, they lose 
Sean Wilson next year, but Britton Brown's still around and, and Daniel Jones is still under center. Um, I'm, I'm curious to see if, if this, if this re- slightly retooled offense is the one we're going to see next year, the, the one that has more balance than what we saw in, in that losing streak in the middle of the season. Jason, did you have anything to add about the quick lane bowl? Yeah, a couple comments. Um, first one is you're talking about, you know, you guys talked about offensive balance. Uh, so Duke had 40 pass attempts and 52 rushing attempts, 40 passes, 50 plus rushes. We love that, only, those numbers, right? I love those numbers. The, the only, I love us rushing the ball more. Um, uh, because I thought, I think that our rushing was, was the best part of our, our offense throughout much of the year. The only other game all year where Duke had 40 plus passes and 50 plus rushing attempts was Northwestern. And, and to me, this game, the game against Northern Illinois, um, was up there with the Northwestern game as our best game of the year. Uh, those are the two games that that I think to, that to me stick out um, as you know. A reminder to folks: we beat Northwestern forty-one to seventeen. This was a really good Northwestern team that we beat badly. They, they went um, on to win nine games and and were competitive in a lot of their better Big Ten matchups. Yeah, yeah. It was a. It, they were ranked. This was a ranked Northwestern team. We housed them forty-one to seventeen, and forty-one to seventeen is pretty similar to the score of the Northern Illinois game that we won thirty-six to fourteen. Um, this balance, forty plus, look, ninety plus plays, but forty plus passing attempts, fifty plus rushing attempts, getting more than two hundred yards round and more than two hundred yards in the air. You know, we didn't do that often this year, and. Um, it, it's a great key to to our success. The other thing I wanted to bring up, um, Daniel Jones. Uh, there was talk before this game that Daniel Jones had been injured at some point during the season. I think um, there was some speculation that perhaps it was a bruised or maybe even a cracked rib that Duke didn't tell folks about this, um, but that Daniel Jones wasn't doing much practicing during the week as a result of it, um, and, and that he hadn't been healthy for a while. And that perhaps that's why we saw a tremendous slump from Duke, um, as Sam pointed out, during the month of October. Um, it, 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 you know, to some extent, it started with the game September 29th against Miami, and um, and it continued all the way through the November 11th game against Army. But but that six game stretch was just awful. It was the it was the worst football we've seen from Duke. Arguably, some of the worst football we've seen since David Cutcliffe arrived, and and it was inexplicable to all of us. But maybe it was inexplicable because Duke didn't want us to know that Daniel Jones was was that hurt, was suffering that much from from a a rib injury. Um, uh, but he, it, it, against Northern Illinois, he got back to running the ball more. His passing seemed more crisp. Um, being a dual threat quarterback is what Daniel Jones does best. And and if this Daniel Jones is around next year to go with our our really stellar defense, and uh, you know it's easy in football to focus on offense, our defense was excellent all season long, and and most of these defensive guys are are back next year. Um, uh, you you have to really you have to love you know where Duke is as a football program, and and love what David Cutcliffe has done to to get us to this point. It's, it's, it's fabulous that we got another bowl win. We get another winning season. The seniors get to go out on top, but, but for the younger guys, um, uh, you know, I really think they can, they can look ahead and, and track uh, what, what should be uh, a, another strong, strong season coming in 2018. And if you to add, 
No, go ahead, Donald. I was going to say, if you are a football team that resides in the state of Illinois, uh, please call the Duke football office because I feel like we play our best when we play against teams from Illinois. Good point. And it, one interesting note for going into next season when we're talking about you know seeing improvement in this team since a lot of the personnel will be the same, other than uh, subbing out Florida State for Clemson, Duke plays the exact same set of opponents next season. So we get Baylor and Northwestern, NC Central, and Army all in the non-conference. And then, of course, the ACC conference schedule doesn't change much year to year since we play in the Coastal and just have the one rotating game against the Atlantic. So um, so it, it'll, be, it'll be cool to be able to compare this year to next year when we get around to it. But we won't get around to that for a few more months. So let's wrap up the show today as we do all the time with our player of the week picks and our parting shots. So I'll start with Donald. Give us your player of the week with only the game against Florida State to uh, to prop up. Although, if you wanted to throw in a football player, you could too. Uh, so my player of the week is going to be Wendell Carter. Uh, I thought Marvin Bagley had a tremendous game, but I think the same can be said of Wendell Carter. He had very important rebounds and defensive plays, especially while in foul trouble. And he was my unsung hero for the Blue Devils against Florida State. If we don't have him on the court, we can say that about a lot of guys. But if we don't have Wendell Carter on the court, we do not win that basketball game. So for that, he is my player of the week. And Jason? 32 points, 21 rebounds. Marvin Bag. I, I, as much as I, <laughs> as much as I love the game Carter had and Duvall had, um, uh, we didn't talk very much about it. But I, I thought Alex O'Connell had incredibly valuable minutes for Duke. Thirty-two points and twenty-one rebounds. I mean, you must be kidding me. The the guy's I, he's inhuman. He's my. I was strategic with my with my placement because I knew one of you were gonna was gonna mention Bagley or both of you. I get it. I get it. Yeah, I, I'm also gonna take Bagley because, I, gosh, I need to. I need to look up what they were saying, but they were saying on the broadcast about how this, or or it might have been on on Duke's Twitter afterwards that that thirty two twenty one was either the first time a Duke player had done it, or it was definitely the first time a freshman had done it because he set the freshman single game rebounding record that that Chalil Okafor had had broken a couple of years ago with a twenty rebound game. So, um, pretty amazing stuff from Marvin Bagley. He's my player of the week. Although, as we mentioned. Before in our recap, Trayvon Duvall down the stretch was Duke's most important player to seal the victory. Let's uh, finish with parting shots. Jason, did you have a parting shot for this week? I do, and and I hearken back to college football. Um, my parting shot is to say thank you. Thank you to the powers that be in college basketball for giving us what college football does not have. So... Last night, we talked a lot about this at the start of the podcast. Last night, we watched Georgia play uh, uh, Oklahoma, and we watched Alabama play Clemson. Uh, we will get Georgia against Alabama for the national title. Um, it, it's a playoff. There's no question it's a playoff. But earlier in the day, Central Florida played Auburn in the Peach Bowl, and Central Florida won that game to go to 13 or 14 and 0, I forget, whatever. They're undefeated. Central Florida finished their season without a loss. And Central Florida had no chance at all to win the national title. Zero, none. I don't know that Central Florida could have played with Georgia or Oklahoma or Clemson or Alabama. I don't know because 
I'll never get to find out. I don't think they could have, but I'll never get to find out. Jason, and, Jason, it's important to note that um, the team that, that UCF beat, which was Auburn, beat the two teams that are playing in the national championship earlier this season. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that you that the transitive property works all the time because Auburn and Georgia split their season series this year, uh, but but UCF proved they could play with a super talented SEC team and. You know, they, maybe they would have gotten blown out, but I agree. They, they deserve that chance, right? Yeah, and, and I was going to make that very point. I'm glad you did. Uh, I thought UCF's game, the Peach Bowl against Auburn, was, was so important for that reason because they were playing a team that had definitively, unquestionably shown that it could play with the big boys. That Auburn team, in addition to playing and beating Georgia and Alabama, had also played Clemson um, and, and fared fairly well, even though they lost against Clemson. So, so here's UCF beating a team that has shown it can play with the best. We will never know. We'll never know what UCF would have done had they been in a playoff, had they been able to play the very, very best. Um, but there's a non-zero chance they're the best team in the country, and they had a 0% chance of making the college football playoff. And that is is just unfair and it's just wrong. And so again, my parting shot is to say thank you to college basketball because that will not happen in our sport. It doesn't happen in college basketball. The small schools, if they play well, get their shot in the tournament to play the big boys. So thank you, NCAA, for being completely screwed up in football, but completely on the right play page in the right place for basketball. Jason, I'm totally with you. Donald, what is your parting shot? Uh, so I'm going to send a shout out to a couple of hockey games that were really cool spectacles in the last week. Uh, first, the Junior World Championships are currently going on in Buffalo. Uh, a lot of people out there probably didn't know that, but Team USA is playing and they played Canada at New Era Field, which is where the Bills play. Um, and it was a great game. Team USA won in the shootout uh, against Canada. And then just a few, uh, I guess yesterday, uh, the Winter Classic took place at City Field. Uh, between the New York Rangers and Buffalo Sabres. So two really entertaining games, and I, I, I am one of those guys who absolutely loves that, uh, that, it, that they're doing these outdoor hockey games. Uh, there's only one more this year. Uh, it's going to be Sam's Washington Capitals uh, hosting the Toronto Maple Leafs in Annapolis uh, at Navy Stadium uh, in March, which should be a fun time. But NHL, I think my, my, my thing to you is to schedule more of these outdoor games, but also – Feature the Red Wings more of them so I can go to them. There we go. Donald, is there a sport you don't like watching? NASCAR. All right. <laughs> that's, that's fair. <laughs> I, wait, I feel wait, like wait. I, can, can, can I co-sign that? I cannot sure. watch auto racing. Although, I've, I will say this. Have you ever been to, uh, an, uh, to a, a stock car race, a NASCAR race? No. Like, I have. On that's amazing. That's really cool. <laughs> I've done that. That's pretty cool. But watching it on TV, no, no, no. So for my parting shot, I also wanted to go back to college football, but I wanted to uh, praise something about college football. So we talked about how we were watching the playoff games last night, and I think I've mentioned this in previous years, but for the college football playoff that ESPN has all the TV rights to, they do a lot of these other um, variations on the, on the video feed so you can watch kind of the normal Kirk Herbstreet broadcast of the 
of the ESPN games, but then they'll do um, they'll do broadcasts with with announcers that are from the each of the teams' radio stations. So you can get like the Clemson feed. Um, they they do a number of different uh, versions of this, but the whenever these playoff games happen, the one that I always watch and I have for the last I don't know four or five years is the, what they call the film room where they have college football coaches current for the most part current coaches they did have brett bielema who was recently fired from arkansas but for the most part it's current coaches they're sitting around like a meeting room table and it's it's pretty casual they're all like wearing sweaters or 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 hoodies from their from their respective schools and and talking in depth about the game and if if you like me often watch games kind of just at home um it's really good uh learning you know the the coaches have a lot to say about what's going on in the field. You can there a lot of times they are predicting what's about to happen before it happens, almost as if they like have the tape, uh, which we know they don't because the game is live. Um, so if you enjoy kind of kind of hearing about the the nuts and bolts of the game and, and about all the little different strategical ticks that are going on, uh, it, it's fun to to watch those coaches do it. And in particular, TCU's Gary Patterson and West Virginia's Dana Holgerson were really uh providing a lot of information last night i dana holgerson like apparently remembers every kid that he recruits because in the in the georgia oklahoma game like almost every it seemed like every few minutes there was a, a play by a particular like a lineman or someone that that no one would have pointed out and dana holgerson's like oh yeah we i i that that kid's really strong you know he grew up in abilene or whatever it was um so th- these coaches have a lot of knowledge and i think that 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 TV format gives them an opportunity to talk really candidly about what they're seeing because they know that it it's really not going to affect anything. I don't think anyone's going back to the film room broadcast and trying to pick up on what Dana Holgerson's trying to do with his West Virginia team against Oklahoma next year. So it's pretty fun, and I think they're doing it again for the national championship. If I am watching by myself, I am sure that I will tune into that feed. So, uh, and I encourage others to do so if you are college football fans. My only final thought about it is that Larry Fedora, the UNC coach, was on it this year, and uh, he didn't really have much to say. So that was fun, and it would be cool if uh, if Coach Cutcliffe was invited to do it because I think he would he would be an, a uh, a good participant on that panel. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, we're gonna we're gonna, <laughs> we're, we're gonna wrap it up there. Uh, don't forget if you love the show subscribe to us on itunes or google stitcher soundcloud wherever you get podcasts don't forget to leave us a nice review if you have complaints feel free to email them to us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com we can also take comments in the thread we always post on the boards at forums.dukebasketballreport.com we always post a thread about the show we have episode 100 coming up pretty soon and i know that that's going to be a great one because we have at least one special guest lined up for that. And finally, if you want to sponsor a show, email us also at that email address, dbrpodcast at gmail.com, and we will get you set up with a sponsorship. So for Donald Wine and Jason Evans, I am Sam Klein. This has been episode 99 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Duke Band, take us home. <laughs>